for whatever reason, God has laid John chapter 21 on my heart over the past month. Um, I was uh, preaching at church on the beach and thought, oh, how cool this setting will be incredible. And the Lord has not allowed me to get away from this chapter. And so I'm just giving it to you this morning. Um, this summer, we have been fed by godly uh, servants. Um, I was trying to recall how many sermons, uh, Daryl, you have probably preached over your lifetime, um, probably into the 20s of thousands. Um, then you think of a guy like Mike Abendroth, who has been that same way, all the way down to guys like Luke Abendroth and Ryan Gindel and myself, who are not uh, veterans in the pulpit. And uh, you guys have just been so faithful this summer. It has been amazing. And praise the Lord that his word is sufficient, whether it's coming out of an old veteran or whether it's coming out of just young rookies. Um, his word is sufficient and it is beautiful. We're in John chapter 21. It is going to take a long time to read it. So just buckle your seatbelt. Let's go. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Debedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, hey children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, well, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped down for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you, may have, that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he knew. He was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the, sermon, during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who's written these things. And we know that this testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. What a tumultuous time that was in 33 AD. So just to give a backdrop, they're at the Sea of Galilee. Some called it the Sea of Gennesaret. Some called it the Sea of Tiberias. But it's also the Sea of Galilee. And guess what? It's still there today. And they were in the town of Capernaum, which is exactly where Jesus had started his public ministry and where he had called his disciples. And now they're in 33 AD. These men had given their lives to follow Jesus. They had given three or four years of their life and they gave up everything and they followed him. And he would be their Messiah. He would be the savior of Israel. But in the last few weeks prior to what we just read, Jesus has now been beaten. He's been falsely accused. He's been crucified in utter humiliation. But he did what he said he would do. And he rose from the dead on the third day. But still, picture yourself as one of the disciples. What would you be doing? Jesus isn't here with you anymore. You have just experienced a life just altering event. And now your Messiah is not with you. Jesus had not given them the great commission yet. It wasn't Acts chapter 1 yet. And so they didn't have the great commission. What were they to do? Where were they to turn? Jesus isn't with them. Have you ever felt that way? 
You've given your life to follow Christ. He's been with you. You have a tumultuous time. You have a time of uncertainty. And you sometimes wonder, where is Jesus? Well, this morning's passage shows us what kind of God we serve. And it is powerful. So when I am in need of direction, I serve a God who provides, who restores, who prepares, and even rebukes me in my life. And he does this to build me up and to build up his church. And so if there's one thing that we're going to hear this morning, we serve a God who provides, restores, prepares, and even rebukes us for the betterment of our life and for the building up of his church. I'd love to point you to Ephesians 2 quickly, verses 19 and 20. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, God is building this church. And he has to build it to specifications. And so he creates the foundation by allowing his son to come and live a perfect holy life, die a death, and be raised from the grave. And he uses Christ as the foundation. And it is built on that foundation through the apostles and prophets. And so these apostles need to be ready, don't they? They need to be ready because their days are going to be used to help build his church. And so how is God building this foundation? How did he build that in Peter and in the apostles? First, he provided. He provided. And you know what he does even today? He provides. How do we see that in scripture? Well, it's right here in verses four through six. Let me go back. Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. His disciples say, hey, that sounds good. Let's go. Let's make a little money. We're going fishing at night. We'll take our haul. We'll go to the market in the morning. We'll have fresh fish. Let's go. Just as the day was breaking in verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Hey, children, do you have any fish? They very humbly, because there's nothing worse than as a fisherman to get zeroed. Isn't, isn't that right, Ryan? Some of you other guys who think y'all are great fishermen and you go out and you catch nothing, that is so embarrassing. We don't have any fish. Hey, why don't you cast your net on the right side and you'll find some. Do y'all recall Amber reading that other passage earlier in the service? It was a very similar situation. They went out fishing. 
This was at the very beginning of their ministry in the Sea of Galilee, right off of the shores of Capernaum. They go fishing. They catch nothing all night long. Jesus says, hey, why don't you do it on the other side of the boat? And they bring in so many fish that, do y'all remember what happened to their nets? What happened? Their nets broke. Cast the net on the other side and you'll find some. They cast it. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Actually, 153 large fish. They weren't counting the little bitty ones. And people would just go crazy trying to interpret 153 fish. Do you know why they counted the fish? Because they knew they were going to the market and they were thinking, how much money are we going to get? 153 large fish. Do you know that God providentially orchestrated that night? The fish, the frustration, the nice catch. A lot of us spend our lives trying to gain our self-worth on accomplishments or professional success. And you know what? We get pretty good at it, don't we? That's where we're comfortable. We're experts in our field. And you know what? Oftentimes Jesus meets us right there. He was right there in this season of vulnerability with his disciples. And he met them right where they were. Peter's not doing anything wrong. Jesus has not given them the Great Commission yet. What an intense, difficult time in the lives of these disciples. In those times, God shows us that we can trust him. Look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. But now the disciples dared not ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They knew it was the Lord. Have you experienced Christ in such a way that you knew that it was only him that could have pulled off what he pulled off? As followers of Christ, we go through life, we go through life, and there are times that he just stops us in our tracks. Have you ever experienced that? He just stops you and you just humbly go, wow, that was the Lord. It's quite a feeling. This was one of those feelings for them. We know when the Lord is at work, but there's more that he provides. When you read verse 13, think about what these disciples were taking in. Jesus came, he took the bread, he gave it to them, and so with the fish. What do you, can y'all picture this? They're at the Sea of Galilee. There's bread and fish. Hmm, what Sunday school person can answer this one for me? What do you think they're thinking about? Not so fast. What do you think they're thinking about? Thank you, honey. The feeding of the 5,000. Bread, fish, Sea of Galilee. Literally, on the shores, 
just on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee is where Jesus fed the 5,000. So they are literally in the same spot. And this man brings up bread and fish. What do you think that is doing in their brains? They're going, we saw this little kid bring two little fish and five little loaves. And he brought it and laid it at the feet of Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He provided a catered meal for thousands of thousands. Oh, we're getting there. Okay. We're getting there. No. If you, I mean, that is awesome. That is what I want to show from this passage. They were catching these things. We may not catch them. They were catching these things. Do you remember when the uh, tax collectors went to Peter and said, hey, your buddy hadn't paid the taxes. Do you all remember that story? You know where they were? One guess, Capernaum. You know what they did? Hey, Jesus says, Peter, go out there, throw your hook in the water, pull it up, reach down in that fish, go pay our taxes. Our Father provides for us. Do you know how much we fight within our own spirits to try to provide for us? And it's like we're getting zeroed. And yet we have a father in heaven who wants to say, I love you. I will provide for you. You trust in me and it will all be good. Does that mean that you're just going to be wealthy? Maybe, maybe not. But he will provide for you. Sadly, I find myself looking to myself for provision instead of to my father in heaven. But our God provides he provides. He provides providentially. Look at verse 9 in chapter 21. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Hmm. A charcoal fire by the sea. You know, our senses play a powerful role in memory and recollection. Y'all know that? I'll just do it for a second. When I get the smell of bacon on a cast iron skillet that is just fired up, and can y'all get that smell in your mind right now? I apologize for that. When I put... I personally get this brand called Wright's Bacon. Y'all, it's hard to get here, but you can get it when you go over the hill, and I'll tell you how you can buy it. It's the best bacon in America. You put it on a cast iron skillet, you throw it in there, the aroma takes over everything. Do you know what that takes me back to? All of our camping trips with our family. So anytime I'm putting bacon on a cast iron skillet, I go straight back to all of our family camping trips and just how many memories our family have, has made. Yesterday, Kelly and I are driving through the eucalyptus trees 
we were out on a date uh, in our Jeep and we drive through the eucalyptus trees, it immediately takes us back to some of the best times we've ever had in ministry when we were living in Oklahoma and we would come here to Santa Cruz and you would get that distinct smell. Y'all know the distinct smell that I'm talking about? We get that smell when we drive down Park Avenue. We also get that smell when we are um, right over by Camp Santa Cruz on 26th and 30th. I mean, it, is ju it just takes you back to some of the sweetest memories of ministry. But you know, some smells may not bring back the best memories. Yesterday, we're on the one. We're driving up to Pescadero. We're, like some of y'all have told us to go eat. Where is it? Yeah, Duarts. Man, it was great. Good call, Annie. But we're driving up the one, and whew, we get this smell. You know what the smell was? It was a dead skunk. <laughs> now, does that bring back great memories? No. You know what it did? It threw us back. We used to live on uh, acreage, and there were skunks outside, you know, our house and land. And our dogs would always go chase the skunks. You know, golden retrievers are the best dogs ever, but they're not very smart. And so Lucy would go and she'd stick her nose right in that skunk. And you know what she would do? She'd come back and we would have to just have the biggest mess. We lost Lucy right before we moved out here. And it just wants to make you cry. That dadgum smell of that skunk just brought back memories. One that's even closer to home, the smell of fire. To many, that smell of smoke that is from a fire can bring you memories of a fireplace with your family or out camping or whatever. But in this area of Santa Cruz County and Northern California, that you just get a faint smell of smoke and you've got PTSD that is rising up from these fires that have caused evacuations, that have caused people to lose homes, people to lose lives. And that smell does not take you to a good place. Have y'all ever experienced that? Isn't it amazing how God can etch in our memories from vivid things like former experiences or even a distinct smell. And you know what he's doing? He is teaching us things we will never forget. Because I promise you, you will never forget experiences like that. And so now we go to there's a charcoal fire that he has the disciples all gather around. It's taking Peter back to John 18, 18. There are only two times in the entire New Testament that the word charcoal in Greek is being used. It's in John 18 and it's in John 21. So they're at Caiaphas' house. Many followers were warming themselves by a charcoal fire. Peter is confronted with his identity as a follower of Christ and he testifies Y'all remember what he testifies? What's he say? Nope. nope. I'm not a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
Oh, yes, you are. And now this little girl. You got to hate those little girls, don't you? <laughs> little girl comes and says, I see you and I can tell your accent. You're from Galilee. You're a follower of Christ. And he drops a few cuss words and he says, no, I am not. And then one of the people who saw him chop the dude's ear off says, yes, you are. I saw you. And he blurts out, I am not a disciple. With that aroma of that charcoal fire. And what does Peter do? He weeps because that dadgum rooster crowed. And he knew that Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me before the rooster crows. And yet we have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And not only does he provide, but he restores. Point number two, he restores. He restores me with tender love and with compassion. Look at verse 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus took Simon Peter and privately restored him. He took Simon Peter and he privately restored him. He didn't humiliate him in front of everybody. I can picture him going, hey, Peter, let's go for a little walk. And he privately restored him. How? With a series of questions that brought back memories. Hey, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, feed my lambs. Simon, do you love me more than these? You know, in John chapter 13, verse 37, it's just going into Peter's brain. Jesus, I'll lay my life down for you. I'll lay my life down for you. These other guys, they may reject you. I'll never leave you. John 13, 37. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Why is Peter grieved? He's been smelling that dadgum fire and he knows that he has disqualified himself for ministry. He has disqualified himself to be what God has called him to be. He rejected his savior at the moment that Jesus needed him the most. As a follower of Christ, you know what we would have done. Peter, you're done. You're done. Not our Jesus. Hey, Peter, I know you failed me. I know you screwed up. I know you're in a volatile place. Hey, Peter, feed my sheep. Hey, Peter, tend my lambs. You know what's really cool? Let's fast forward about 30 years to A.D. 64 when Peter is in Rome pinning the book of First and Second Peter during the persecution of Nero. In 1 Peter chapter 5, listen to these words. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those of you, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, those of you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you. What wisdom coming from the pen of Peter. Humility, submission, shepherding, feeding, pastoral language, tend the flock. Who taught him that? That sure wasn't Peter in those three years, was it? Who taught him that? You think he remembered those lessons? Do you know that those verses are the very foundation of what builds healthy churches? 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 3. If we didn't have those verses, we wouldn't even know what to look for in church leadership. Do you know when churches break down? When they're not following 1 Peter 5 and 1 Timothy 3. Jesus used that moment to etch in Peter's brain. Hey brother, you're going to help build this church. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. But I need you to remember these lessons. So smell that charcoal smoke. Look at that little fish. Look at those loaves of bread. Here's a question. Have you ever been restored by our Savior? I would hope that you would nod your head yes. Have you ever been restored by your Savior? Let me go this way. Have you ever screwed up to the point that you feel like you are unworthy of continuing to be called a Christian? Do you know that we serve a Savior who doesn't throw you away? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know what's sad? We in the church will throw each other away, though. I pray that our church becomes like Christ, that we restore relationship. We privately put our arm around him and say, let's go for a walk. Isn't that restoration beautiful? Isn't it awesome? Number three, he prepares us. He prepares us. Preparation for life with Christ is not a cakewalk. If people sell you cakewalks, that's not Christianity. Preparations for life with Christ includes perseverance, sometimes with agony. It always brings peace that is beyond our comprehension. 
It always brings joy and it always brings hope. And it's inexplainable how God works, but following Christ is costly. Verse 18 and 19 show us that. We must consider the cost. He says to Peter in verse 18 and 19, you will glorify me in your death. Follow me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Don't gaze to the right or to the left. Hey, Peter, you start looking away from me, you're going to drown. You look right at me, you follow me. Persevere to the end. I want to take us to Matthew 16, verse 24. Dave has been bringing that verse up to us recently in our community, missional community, and it's been awesome. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to find his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life for my sake will find it. You know, if you look at that economically, it makes no sense. To gain my life, I must lose it. I need to surrender to Christ. I need to give up. Yes, there's a price that we pay for the investment of following Christ. But I want you to look at the next couple of verses. Actually, Matthew 16, 27. The word says, What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Put a price tag on your soul. Put a price tag on your soul. I think I would love to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him daily. I think the return of an eternal investment is worth the price of my soul. I would encourage you, if you have never given your life to Christ, consider the price of your soul. It's a costly price. It was paid for by the blood of Jesus if you have truly repented of your sins and followed him. But if you haven't, it is a pricely cost. And it has eternal, eternal ramifications. John 15, 18 tells us that we're going to be hated by the word if we are followers of Christ. But don't be discouraged about that. The world hated Jesus first. There is a costly price to following Christ. And it's worth every penny of it. And finally, in true Peter fashion, he can't just receive the provision, the restoration, and the preparation. He has to be Peter. And so number four, Jesus rebukes him lovingly. He rebukes him. Verses 20 to 23. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who he had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, what is, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Hey, what about that guy? What about that guy? 
Jesus said to him, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. But that isn't what Jesus was saying to him, that he wasn't going to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? What is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, it's none of your business how I deal with John and how he will serve me. How I deal with him and how I deal with his sin, how I deal with his call, it has nothing to do with you. That's between me and him. You follow me, Rob. We can learn a lot from this dialogue between Peter and Jesus. I personally find myself always looking over my shoulder. Anybody else do that? I look over my shoulder and I make sure that the next guy is getting treated the same way I'm getting treated. I want fairness. Anybody else want fairness? You know what? Jesus says with fairness, he says, you worry about yourself, you follow me, you quit worrying about everybody else. And I say, that's not fair. And I'm the definer of fair. And that's not God's economy. What is your call? Follow him. What is your call? Follow him. What is my call? Follow him. But I like their call. I like theirs better. You know what? That's not for you to decide. You follow me. So we have this Peter who followed and who obeyed. Peter, who is a passionate fisher of men, now added to his call, feeder of sheep and isn't the church thankful for that call isn't the church thankful that Jesus didn't throw Peter off the boat he restored him he provided for him he prepared him he rebuked him do you ever need rebuking I need it not as much as he gives it to me but I need it <laughs> And some of you need it a lot worse. But I'm not going to tell God to do that because I read in this passage that it's not about me and I'm not in charge. We need rebuke. Do you know what I would be scared of? I would be scared if he doesn't rebuke you. I'd be scared if he's not preparing you. Because we need that relationship with Christ. Let's pray.